Hello and welcome to listeners and viewers of the podcast. As always, it's me, Autistically R, with the New Rainbow Cast podcast for the New Rainbow Project. And before I get on with introducing my guest, and I went to the marker milestone, and this milestone, I think, is considerably important for myself and this podcast. In the, we launched it last October. The podcast has uh, got to when over one thousand listeners, and that's over one thousand listeners and downloads across the globe in the continents like Asia, Europe, Australasia, and North America. And for those uh, listeners and now viewers of the podcast who have decided to listen and tune into this podcast. I thank you so much for our podcast since we launched my guest this week. Like uh, the first Lydia, Lydia Wilkins, who came on a podcast to chat to about her cookbook, autism-friendly cookbook, which I chatted to her about autism and eating as well as promoting that book. Lydia Lydia Powell, like Lydia Wilkins, uh, asked to come on the podcast rather than me inviting them on directly by contacting them. She kind of asked if she would like, if she wouldn't mind coming on the podcast, which I was delighted to accept. And it was a great privilege and delight to be able to have the chance to interview her and which I was pleased with the interview, giving a blockbuster interview, talking about the confidence coaching, how she got to where she is, and describes her experiences with ADHD, uh, as well as to forewarn you that there are references to disordered eating, rather. These are my references in no means graphic references to disordered eating it is important to let you know in advance so if this is uh, a triggering uh, topic for yourself then you might want to uh, skip over but this is kept as short and mild not in any means to be graphic description but in the references she did give some help and advice of what has helped her with her disordered eating. Which she says, for more about the podcast, you can visit www.newrainbowproject.com. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Lydia Powell. I'm a confidence coach for neurodivergent women, which is kind of a new venture of mine, but something that I've been working towards for quite a long time. I was diagnosed with ADHD myself two years ago, I think 2021, when I was 25. I'm 27 now, so I'm in the late diagnosis gang with all of the women. (laughs) And prior to working for myself, I was a finance manager. So my background is accounting and finance, which is really exciting. What I'm doing now is much better by Mm -hmm. far. But yeah, that's just a bit about me. Yeah, that's great. So for this interview, you know, as you wanted to focus on, so we'll focus a bit on about what the co- confidence coaching is, 
and the importance that for neurodivergent women, as you tend to help neurodivergent women the most, and that's on your uh, diagnosis of ADHD, and as well as your uh, experience in uh, employment and how that's been for you. So do you want to start by giving a bit of a backstory about your neurodivergent story? So how did you find out you had ADHD and what were the uh, signs from your early life into adulthood? Yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a long, complicated story for me, as I think it is for a lot of people, especially women. I remember having all of the kind of feelings from a young age of being different, not being the same as everybody else, being very distractible, very chatty, getting told to shut up a lot <laughs> at school. For me, I'd say the real issues for me began when I was sort of a teenager. Naturally at school, I, I did well. I was naturally academic. I think that's probably one of the reasons why it wasn't picked up on because I was getting the grades. So even though I wasn't paying attention, I wasn't doing my homework, nobody really noticed because I, I was getting good grades. But as a teenager, really things started to fall apart for me. I suffered a lot with anxiety and depression, that feeling I think a lot of people can relate to of just feeling different and like you don't fit in. So I remember seeking help from a doctor by myself. I didn't even tell my parents. I went to the doctor and said, you know, I, I feel so anxious and I'm depressed all the time. And I remember actually at the age of 19 saying to a doctor, I think I have bipolar disorder. And he basically laughed me out of the room, obviously. This didn't take me seriously at all. And I got no help at all. So I carried on and I made the decision at the end of school not to go to university, which at the school I went to was really looked down upon. I think most schools, to be honest, are really pushy about university. But my school, it was it was a really big deal. I remember being called into the head teacher's office and being told that going to college was for stupid people and I was better than that. And everybody kind of trying to put me off going on my own on my own route. But I just knew I had this sense at this quite young age that university wasn't going to be right for me. When I joined the workforce at 17, I really felt like I'd found my place. It suited me. The the deadlines, the structure, everything like that really, really suited me as a person. And I took to it like a duck to water, to be honest. But as the years went on, obviously, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was getting burned out. I, I had very quick progression with work. I did very well. I got promoted very quickly. I decided to start studying in my evenings to become an accountant. Uh, I became a finance manager very quickly, kind of climbed the corporate ladder as it was. And then lockdown came and we had to start working from home. I was living on my own at the time and all of my coping mechanisms that I didn't realize were coping mechanisms were stripped from me and my world imploded. I was having anxiety attacks at four o'clock in the morning, calling my poor dad screaming down the phone. You know, I just, I just lost the ability to cope. And I think because of that inherent guilt and shame that we feel as neurodivergent people, I had never really reached out for help. And when I had reached out for help, I'd sort of been turned away. So I was very put off doing that. So I remember sitting in my living room in lockdown thinking, I'm in a really bad place. And if I don't let somebody know, I don't know how this is going to end. And I went to see my mum, which filled me with fear because obviously we were in the middle of a global pandemic I thought I was going to kill her 
but I just knew I was at a crisis point. So I went to my mum and I said, I don't feel good. I sort of explained everything I was going through, the, the crippling anxiety, which I'd been living with for such a long time at that point, the depression, the chaos, the fact that I just wasn't consistent at all. And I felt like I was covering this up from everyone and hiding it. And I had this huge shame surrounding all of that. And my mum said to me, well, how long have you been feeling like this? And I stopped and I said, my whole life. And that was the first time I'd ever really expressed to somebody how I'd been feeling. And I was 25 years old. I was in the very fortunate position that my parents were able to send me to a private psychiatrist. So I was able to see a psychiatrist the following week, actually. That in itself caused more problems than it fixed, realistically, because I was actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It was within 30 minutes of a phone call. The psychiatrist I was speaking to was like, yep, you're bipolar. She put me on medication for bipolar disorder. It was anti-seizure medication or something like that. So I was put on medication for it really fast. The medication made me incredibly unwell. I got worse and worse and worse. And then eventually a friend of mine did an assessment for ADHD. It turned out she didn't have ADHD, but it made me wonder, oh, that actually sounds a little bit like me. So I sat with my mum we completed this ADHD assessment. And at the end of it, we both looked at each other and thought, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> so I went back to my psychiatrist and said, I don't think I do have bipolar. I think I have ADHD. And I'll never forget this. As long as I live, she said to me, you can't have ADHD because you're too intelligent and you've had too much success in your career. Your IQ is too high. And if I had have been any less kind of firm and confident in in that being the correct diagnosis for me. I would have just accepted it, carried on with treatment for bipolar and, and had an incorrect diagnosis. Luckily, I felt strong enough to go, actually, don't like that. I don't think that's correct at all. That's not my understanding of ADHD from the research I've done. And I moved to a different psychiatrist who I still see to this day, who is incredible, who couldn't believe that somebody in, in the medical industry had basically said, you can't have ADHD because you're not stupid. He said to me, you know, it's very common that people with ADHD are also highly intelligent or gifted. And that's just completely wrong. So I eventually found a good doctor and I got my diagnosis and I started on medication. The first medication I took was methylphenidate or as often known as it's by its American brand name Ritalin. And I took that on a very low dose for a couple of weeks. I didn't really notice, but it was actually making my ADHD worse. And then when I increased the dose, within 10 minutes of taking the additional tablet, I started having full body tics. I now actually do have Tourette's. I've had tic disorder for two years. I've always had tics, but I didn't notice because they were so minor. It was only when I took the Ritalin that they actually really came out a lot more. So I do also have a tic disorder now which is wonderful, <laughs> Add, adding to the list. <laughs> but yeah, so I went on a long journey and basically I'm one of the 20% of people that stimulants do not work for, unfortunately, because I know a lot of people have a lot of success with stimulant medication. For me, the journey with medication has been long and not very successful. In fact, I've only within the last couple of months found 
a course of medication that that really helps me. As I was making notes for what I was going on to like go back on when to talk about, I said, you know, like you were thought you had bipolar disorder, then had a diagnosis for bipolar disorder, then got misdiagnosed, and then experiences of anxiety and depression. So, what would you say that? The challenges with the mental health in terms of ADHD triggering anxiety and depression symptoms and your misunderstanding or your medical professionals' misunderstanding of ADHD are like part of the more disabling parts of ADHD and the more misunderstood parts of ADHD. Yeah, so in terms of the aspects of ADHD that kind of affect me the most and have for my whole life and I think are kind of the most misunderstood is for me definitely how we work something that I found a deep shame in was the way that I work I'm I'm a very all or nothing kind of a person so for me, yesterday I had a great day. I woke up and I was all guns blazing, sat down to work, hyper-focused all day. Usually when I have a day like that, it's followed by a crash day where I can't do anything. And so you can imagine obviously having a career and being in a senior position. My output looked as good, if not better than everybody else's in terms I was getting the work done and I was getting good quality work done. The way in which I got that work done was very different to the people around me. I don't have consistent effort. I have bursts of energy and then crashes. So I think that's one of the things that's very misunderstood and and not recognized with people that are neurodivergent. I don't think this is just exclusive to ADHD. I think autistic people suffer with this as well. So I think for me, from the point of view of work and it really affecting my life in that way, I would say, yeah, 100% the way that I work was really challenging for me and even though I was getting the the output the work was done the way in which it was done filled me with shame and and that in itself causes huge anxiety and depression you what you feel like a fraud you feel like you're going to get found out you know if you have a week for example where you're absolutely getting it done and you're like really like getting the work done and then you that's followed by a week of just blobbing out in your chair thinking I can't do anything even though you've done the work, you will feel intense guilt and shame. And I hid that for years. My whole career, I hid that and felt very ashamed of it. And and I, I ended up with absolutely crippling anxiety as a result. Yeah, I guess it's something with having ADHD. It's like sometimes it can be a bit of a struggle when you work in like a nine to five job or in a typical neurotypical way of doing work. And that can cause a struggle because productivity and the way the mind is different with ADHD because it's not like you have the same way of structuring your work and productive settings in the same way as a neurotypical person in terms that you may have a productive period that might not fit the 95 job routine. You might have those bursts of energy on the burnout and so I guess sometimes not always able to work with your most optimal energy times mm. of productive in a day and not have many outputs for being able to recharge and re-energize after periods of burnout. 
And and the expectation from employers is really that they say, oh, I want you to work X hours a week and this, that and the other. And in my opinion, it's a completely wrong way of looking at it, because I know that I can get on a productive day more done in an hour than a neurotypical person can do in a whole day. You know, I know that I can have these incredibly intense bursts of of productivity. And that in itself is such a skill. And it's so unrecognized by the way that companies operate nowadays. It really isn't understood. It isn't recognized. I think it's slightly better now that people can kind of work from home. And since the pandemic, companies have adopted more flexible approaches to working. But I still think that there's a huge misunderstanding with how neurodivergent people work. And it's not worse. It is just different. You know, our work is is valuable. Our contributions are valuable. I think everybody accepts that Silicon Valley wouldn't exist without autistic people. So... The contribution that neurodivergent people make to the world is absolutely huge. And I think that we're just lagging behind in terms of finding a way to adapt the working world to how people with brains like ours work and operate. Would you say from stuff of having had like sense hyperactive and being quite po- positive in your mood and having that like intense burst of energy and being happiness and then you know, having these crash out and burnout moments. But do you say it's particularly stuff like that that was an issue for you in terms of getting a late diagnosis and then particularly thinking it's like bipolar disorder? Yeah, I think the anxiety and depression, as I understand it, aren't I think it's emotional dysregulation is a symptom of ADHD, a recognized symptom. But the anxiety and depression, often it comes to the forefront when you're getting a diagnosis. And that tends to be what the medical professionals look at. They go, oh, anxiety, depression. But what's the cause of the anxiety and the depression? For me, it was definitely trying to fit myself into a neurotypical world as a neurodivergent person. And feeling when you're very aware that you're operating in a very different way to everybody else, you do feel a sense of shame. Why am I different? Why can they do this and I can't? And there's nobody there going, hey, your way is just as good. You're do- you're getting the same amount done. You're just doing it in a different way. And obviously comparing yourself to other people is one of the best ways of making yourself incredibly depressed and anxious, especially as a neurodivergent person. And let's face it, we're surrounded by neurotypical people that can do consistent effort, can get up every morning and brush their teeth, you know, no problem, like stuff like that. But us neurodivergent people, we aren't like that. So I think that being in a a neurotypical world and having to kind of fit into those sort of styles of working and things it was a massive cause of depression and anxiety for me by the end of my career I quit my last job in it would have been like October November 2021 I hit major burnout major burnout and I was pretty much out of the game for two years it was really really bad and that was almost entirely down to well several things first of all people pleasing and the inability to say no. So I had huge amount of work piled on me. I had done very well and I was very successful, but I had hidden from my employer that I struggled with my mental health. I didn't tell them when I'd had an ADHD diagnosis. I didn't have any kind of adjustments in place for me. So I was really felt like I was 
hiding and it's they're like a sheep in wolf's clothing you feel like you're hiding and that will destroy you from the inside out at that point you were masking in your field of work and masking within your life and so when just like for clarity were you was you getting diagnosed with ADHD 2021 I think it was May April 2020 I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then the following year I was diagnosed with ADHD by which point I was at the point of kind of collapse the diagnosis was sort of a mixed bag of emotions it felt like I'd found my people I was like oh yeah this is me which I didn't get with the bipolar diagnosis I couldn't really relate to that but also it was this really crushing sense of oh my god like I've been dealing with this without any support for so long. And I would say before getting my diagnosis, I say the biggest thing that I think has really changed for me since my diagnosis of ADHD is asking for help. I spent my whole life feeling like I was different, bad. I felt like the quality of my work was good. I didn't question kind of my capabilities, but in terms of like my consistency and things like that, I had a lot of shame surrounding that. And one of the things that my diagnosis has taught me is that it's okay to ask for help and to get support and to change things to suit you. And now as somebody that works for themselves, I am hot on making sure that I've got the things in place that I need to work around who I am. I'm still learning. It's a whole learning process. I understand it would be still learning process because even though you're like your confidence quotes, helping everyone with divergent people and you can help them learn more about themselves, feel more confidence in, in themselves. But since you were like only diagnosed two years ago, I, I assume that you're still on your path of getting more confidence by the day within yourself. And learning about yourself in the terms of the ADHD affects you and how to improve your quality of life. And as you said, that asking for help, even though your like quality of work was good and it may not be like helping improve your quality of work, but in terms of like avoiding burnout, those are the things you would need to ask for help with to like be able to take a you know like mental health day of off work and just me make sure you can take steps to self-care for yourself and yeah. would you imagine from a young age that you wasn't able to do as you had anxiety and depression from like being undiagnosed with ADHD mm-hmm. mostly in this regulation and it's from that I think you sound feeling a bit more lacking how you can ask for help and what you need help with because lack of diagnosis and you assume that with your bipolar disorder diagnosis then you must have had the cast of doubt with it when you got diagnosed because you said that like with your ADHD diagnosis even though you said that it wasn't like a straight straightforward who you feeling happy about it Getting diagnosed relieves that mixed bag of feelings. You wish you could get diagnosed earlier, but in terms of probably a bipolar disorder diagnosis, you must have assumed that you didn't have entire confidence that you were bipolar. 
I think the confidence is crucial when it comes to the diagnosis process. Confidence is something that I'd really worked on before I got diagnosed. It's it's definitely a journey. It was a bit up and down and I didn't really have any support with it. So it was something I sort of self-taught myself. Your confidence does get knocked when you get a diagnosis of anything, even if you're sort of expecting it. There's something about one of the things with confidence is really knowing yourself and trusting yourself. And when somebody gives you a diagnosis, it affects your sense of identity hugely. So I think when it comes to, you know, confidence and diagnosis, if I hadn't have been confident when my first psychiatrist said to me, you can't have ADHD, you're not stupid. I'd have just accepted what she said. I'd have gone along with it, but I was confident enough to go, oh, actually, no, this isn't right. I need to seek treatment for something else. So the confidence is absolutely crucial. And I know there's a lot of people getting completely crushed by the system because they don't have the confidence to make decisions, put themselves where they need to be. I assume probably by that time when you like felt confident enough to say that, I don't think this is right. When your psychiatrist, then psychiatrist, then told that you couldn't have ADHD, I guess you had the confidence enough by learning before your diagnosis more about ADHD and understanding what it means and how that it's not something that affects your intelligence and stuff like that. And so from understanding a lot more and being alert and aware and being able to think critically and challenge things, I guess that gives you the confidence then and the certainty to think that that while you psychiatrist then was telling you was wrong yeah it's really difficult after I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder my confidence absolutely took a nosedive I think in part because it was the wrong diagnosis so I didn't align with it so it kind of it sort of did both it boosted my confidence because I thought yeah that feels more right but I also took a knock because I thought well what does this mean for who I am I'd sort of been messed around a lot and like you say you've also got in the back of your mind well my last psychiatrist told me that people with ADHD are stupid am I stupid? You know, now I've got this diagnosis. It it makes you question yourself. To be honest with you, you, the access to services in this country is absolutely appalling. I was very fortunate to be able to see a private psychiatrist for my diagnosis and latterly a therapist. And I have an occupational therapist as well. But I think one of the things that I really felt after my diagnosis was very alone. And that also can affect your confidence. One of the things that really lifted me actually was TikTok, because obviously there's so much content on TikTok, right? I think that everybody sort of relates to finding their sort of army online because we have things like TikTok now, although it can be a bit of a, what they call it, the dopamine slot machine. (laughs) They say, why are there so many people with ADHD on TikTok? Well, (laughs) it's easy a question to answer. My confidence did take a knock, but gradually with the kind of representation that's out there, you can see that we're all so unique and different. And from that, I started to rebuild my identity again and my confidence started to come back in who in who I was. Like, it's like, thing is, the feeling of, you know, uh, again, diagnosis of any neurodivergent condition is never straightforward. It's always mixed emotions because, as you say, that... For anyone, it's like that thing of, how do I learn a lot more about myself? What does it mean for me? You know, what help do I need? How can I change things to make things better for myself? And I can give you a lot more understanding about yourself. But from getting a diagnosis, it can be quite 
isolating still mm-hmm. even to this day, even though we get a lot more understanding. Yeah. Because as I say, you've got a lot more understanding on social media as you can, like a big platform like TikTok, because mm-hmm. you're seeing people talk about it, like the full videos, seeing people's faces talking mm-hmm. about it. Me- Makes you feel a bit more personal. Yeah. But still, when you are getting diagnosed, there's no uh, meetup or any groups they can interconnect with other new neurodivergent ADHD adults and get to know these things. When you probably say about the lack of service to get diagnosed in the UK, understanding what a diagnosis means and in terms of the therapies that can help with yourself that as you hinted you had occupational therapy with it but lack of understanding as you said when you were in your teen years there was lack of understanding of for yourself of what ADHD and bipolar disorder means uh, going back to when you was in your teenage years even though you thought then you might have bipolar disorder then you would be more confident with it than when you got your diagnosis in your adult life, being a misdiagnosis. But what was, like, before you got your ADHD diagnosis, what changed with your understanding of ADHD and bipolar disorder and the things you learned in between? First thing I actually want to say is yeah, I'm, I'm glad I was misdiagnosed with bipolar polar disorder and, and I'll tell you the reason for why because it wasn't the right diagnosis for me but one of the things that happened when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder is I was forced to confront my own stigma within myself against mental health there is so much stereotype stigma and taboo around mental health when I was suddenly labeled with a mental health condition I had to deal with my own prejudice and my own stigma all of a sudden it was directed at myself and I thought oh my god so one of the things that came from that was a real deep compassion for people with all kinds of mental health conditions and issues I get hyper fixated on things so when I was diagnosed I researched the living daylights out of bipolar disorder. I can list off all the people in the world that are famous that have bipolar disorder. It sort of helped me to be more compassionate. So when I came to getting my ADHD diagnosis, I guess I'd sort of handled a lot of the issues I had within myself with stigma and stereotypes. But again, I'd been faced with it in in the medical industry. I think the... difficult it's it's so difficult to kind of move away from your kind of pre-existing feelings about stuff and to relearn about something I had to learn what ADHD was what that meant for me I did a lot of research on the internet that's so ADHD I think when I was a teenager and I thought that I had bipolar disorder it was because I had this really up and down mood which was obviously because I had undiagnosed ADHD so that was sort of how it was presenting and when I went to the doctor I was desperate I was like there is something wrong with me somebody needs to help me and all that I could really figure out from googling and research was bipolar disorder with the up and mood that was the only thing I could think and it wasn't so much that I 
I hadn't really prepared mentally as a teenager for what a diagnosis of bipolar would feel like if I actually got one. All I knew was that I didn't feel good and I needed somebody to understand that I felt sort of trapped. So when it came around to actually being diagnosed with bipolar disorder as an adult in 2021, it was very much like, oh God, I was right. There is something horribly wrong with me and no one's missed it. There was a lot of anger. I felt quite a lot of anger around the period of time I was being diagnosed, mainly because I felt when I was a teenager, I was so desperately crying out for help and it felt like no one had listened. It was a mixture of validation, like, yes, you do need some help. You do need some support anger why did nobody pick up on this I feel like as a teenager I was screaming out for help no one was listening and I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling a bit angry when you get diagnosed especially as an adult and I mean I was 25 that's quite young compared to a lot of people I know a lot of women who've been diagnosed in their 40s and 50s I think that was the sort of transition as a teenager I was absolutely desperate for a diagnosis because I knew there was something wrong and I needed help Whereas when I was an adult, it sort of changed to anger of like, I've been suffering with this for so long and nobody's picked up on it. And I've done everything in my power. Yeah, I think when you get that taken always later on in life, it can trigger like a a grief complex of not getting a diagnosis early on. And I guess from the point to you getting your diagnosis until then, you was in an awkward period of not knowing about who you are. And since... Then the your teenage years when you figured out something was different about yourself and you had a different mind to other people around you, that from early on then, like you spent your life until your diagnosis working out what was different and being that confused, you know, uh, mm. space. I think as well. You don't think you know anybody that's like you. My best friend was recently diagnosed with ADHD and autism. We've been best friends since we were 11. And it's so taboo and stigmatized and not understood that we went all that time not knowing that we both basically had the same condition. I haven't got a diagnosis of autism, but I do have quite a lot of autistic traits. And we sort of were joking, saying that I'm like mainly ADHD with a bit of autism and she's mainly autism with a bit of ADHD. It's just that... You do have an identity crisis when you're diagnosed as an adult and the support isn't the same. I think as a child, if you're diagnosed as a child, I mean, you might know um, uh, because yeah. I feel like I think you said you were diagnosed as a child that, that you get more support from like a younger age. I don't know if that was the case for you. Uh, I got diagnosed from the age of 10, but apart from like the support I had from Cam's mental health that was already seen a child psychiatrist with then. Apart from that and the support I could get in school, I think there wasn't as much support. Like my mother did get some information about it, but there wasn't much extra support than what I had uh, in terms of autism, like than what, what on addition to the support I had in school, because like most of the support that I had outside of school was when he was younger, before the age of 10, in terms of my dyspraxia. As you say, that in terms of like the lack of services and the lack of support, that I think there's probably some issues of things we need to go and support in, like whether it's teens and adults who are autistic, ADHD, and have ever neurodivergent or mental 
health conditions? For me, when I was first diagnosed, so when I got misdiagnosed first with bipolar, it was, it was very much like, right, this is your diagnosis. This is the meds we're going to try off you go. There was no, and I went private and I think you'd sort of expect if you're going private that the door would be opened to this mystical land of support and help. And, and it wasn't like that at all. Even with my my current psychiatrist, I mean, he sort of recommended a couple of therapists for me. But again, for the cost of seeing those therapists was, I can't really think of the word here, but very, it's elitist. I mean, the, the, some of these therapists charge you £150 for like 45 minutes of therapy and they want you to kind of do that once a week indefinitely I mean if you think if you look at kind of doing like a a short course maybe you can find the money to kind of invest in that but that's just completely out of reach for most people I think even through the NHS I mean like if you're saying you were diagnosed as a child and there still wasn't really any support I think it's a an issue of massive importance that neurodivergent people basically just aren't getting the support that they need I know that I'm only now as a 27 year nearly 28 year old woman getting the kind of support that I need and I've sourced that all by myself you know that's been my own personal research finding people who can give me recommendations and and the other thing as well that I've done um is because and this this is so important and this is something that I think is really difficult for people being open about your diagnosis. I wasn't open about it at first, especially while I was at work, but now I'm very open about it. I tell people, I'm like, oh, I might be late because because I have ADHD. You kind of allow people in. When you allow people into your world, another crazy thing happens. You start to meet other people just like you. If you're open about it, you create a safe space for other people to also be open. I've met so many incredible people who are autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, dyspraxic, all because I've been able to say to people, oh, I have ADHD. And it gives them the safe space to kind of open up. And I really do believe that connection with other people is a great way of accessing support my connections with people who have ADHD is what's led me to the support that I receive now the therapist that I have the occupational therapist that I have the psychiatrist that I have also I have a business group that's for neurodivergent women that's all come about through connections with people who are neurodivergent the more open we are the more it will lead us to the right services. But again, it shouldn't be that way. The services should be easily accessible. Because like you say, when you get your diagnosis, you might not want to tell people straight away. And therefore, you don't necessarily get the information you need to find the resources that you need, which is, again, where kind of confidence comes into it. And confidence is being able to own your identity, speak your truth, and live as your authentic self, your unmasked authentic self. As you say, in in terms of when you got, like, started to be open with your diagnosis of ADHD, sharing your ADHD traits and talking about that. And I think that's the biggest thing in terms of confidence and, like, working on confidence that you can do is be open and honest and tell people that part of your identity. Because, like, for many years, that's, when I was like battles with my internalized ableism, or until I was becoming an adult in like the like just before my 18th birthday, and that's the only point where I started to feel comfortable disclosing that that autism diagnosis with my peers, and so that that confidence, I say that it's probably like the biggest aspect 
of working on your confidences, how you disclose, share, be open and transparent about your neurodivergent traits. It's about having that confidence in your identity and not seeing it as as a defect. I think as well, one of the really sort of challenging things is when you kind of opening up and 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 sharing with people is is what their reaction is going to be and how the onus being on you to educate people and I think what can be really stressful and I found this particularly with the bipolar diagnosis you feel like you have to educate people people will make comments so offhand like oh my god she's so bipolar or he's so bipolar and they use it as an insult to go into an environment where you've heard people make comments like that and to feel comfortable then exposing that part of yourself it's never going to happen because you, you you the fear is 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 awful like well what are they going to think of me they obviously have this negative association and it's the same thing with ADHD or any, any diagnosis you get the the onus is on you to educate other people and as that's tiring it's exhausting I don't want to have to educate everybody on on who I am yeah and I think that's something that collectively we all kind of have to deal with is educating people and that's scary and it requires confidence it also requires energy and sometimes you can't be bothered you're not always going to want to tell people because you just think can't bother today but I do think that owning that part of your identity as you go along you start to stop caring what other people's stereotypes are if you live in your true authentic self you will show people the beauty of who you are as a whole irrespective of your diagnoses so going back on like when you said that like your friend from like when you was in childhood got diagnosed with ADHD and autism and with your ADHD and you tend a lot to stick traits. So what are the telltale traits from like your life that you were so that you were AD, had ADHD then throughout your life? Oh, <laughs> where do I begin? It's interesting because now I have the diagnosis to have more of the vocabulary around it, whereas I didn't have the vocabulary before. I am extremely time blind. Good luck getting me anywhere on time. That is something that I have to put a lot of work in, lateness. My focus is horrible. If I'm talking to somebody and I'm not interested, it is physical pain for me to try and stay engaged in the conversation. Physical pain. So that kind of staying focused on things that I'm not interested in is really hard for me. And that kind of actually spreads not just out and deal with communicating with people, but also in the way that you work. I hyper-focus massively. I'm a huge hyper-fixator. So I do have these short burst hobbies where I'm really kind of interested and then I give up on them really quickly. But I also have periods of hyper-focus where I'm really going for it. I think for me, the really kind of classic ADHD symptoms that I'm affected by, yeah, the distractibility. I am incredibly impulsive, very chatty, if you hadn't noticed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think... I can be quite snappy and irritable. I'm impatient, very impatient. That's something that I'm really working on at the moment, especially when it comes to work. When I go to work, I'm a different person. I'm like this and I'm very impatient and I kind of expect other people's brains to work as fast as my brain does, which obviously most people's don't. Racing thoughts. I have a hundred mile an hour thoughts. I'm a great problem solver, but that's great when you want to solve a problem 
in the rest of your life, having thoughts that never shut up isn't always a great quality. I'm an insomniac. I struggle to sleep. And I also have had addiction issues in the past. So that's something that I have to work on as well, which again is really common with people with, with ADHD, that constant hunt for dopamine I also suffer a lot with with sensory issues. I have a lot of sort of sensory icks, which I think is is very ADHD and autism. I think they're kind of, you know, some of the crossover things. I also really struggle with disordered eating. So that's something that's kind of been an issue for me, either eating loads or eating absolutely nothing at all. It when I started taking medication, it that got even worse. And and actually at the moment getting back into a routine of eating is is something that I'm working really, really hard on. I actually went, God, I'm just trying to think without proper, it's been about three months of, of really struggling to eat at all. And I'll occasionally get days where I can sort of go for it, but that's sort of another issue. And if you don't eat, your ADHD gets worse. So that inability to kind of focus and get down to things and, and all of all of the symptoms that I listed, the depression, the anxiety all gets worse when you're not eating. So so that's another one I think that people don't really talk about too much is the disordered eating that you can have with ADHD as well. With the disordered eating, or was it like affected you? I know all the things that have helped you in terms of like starting to recover from it, making like start on a bit more healthier relationship with it, improve like eating disorder. Yeah. So I have actually kind of, I feel like I'm really coming through the other side with this one. I've had a lot of help from therapists with this. So a lot of my kind of food issues can be sensory. So it's a bit complicated to explain, but when it comes to food, there is an awful lot of anxiety wrapped up in the idea of planning food. I find that very overwhelming and preparing food seems like a really daunting task to me. So if I do have a hunger pang and I'm sitting there and I think, oh, I am actually quite hungry right now. I'll then immediately think about everything that's required in order to make a meal and it will put me off and I just won't eat. So that's kind of one of the things. And then the other thing is not having any hunger at all. I don't recognize my hunger signals. So I can go the whole day without eating, no problem. I'll get to about 7, 8, 9 p.m. And I'll think, cool, I'm really dizzy. Why am I dizzy? Haven't eaten all day. So one of the tips that my occupational therapist gave me was to basically eat ready meals. She said, the first thing we need to target is your routine with eating. So she said, don't worry about preparing food don't worry about cooking don't worry about any of that stuff just get ready meals in so I got ready meals and I set alarms to eat and all I had to do was go and put the food in the microwave and it changed my life my focus was much better my ADHD symptoms were much better and I was on medication that was helping but just having the fuel to function in my body really changed everything I actually started to lose weight my body was really holding on to weight because I wasn't eating properly. And it sounds really weird, but as soon as I started to eat, I started to lose weight in a healthy way. And then f- from that, I sort of developed the routine with eating three times a day. I started just trying to eat two meals a day. Now I eat three meals a day. Um, and just this week, I've actually started cooking. So I've sort of moved from 
being able to eat three times a day to now I'm actually able to sort of prepare meals from scratch, quite simple ones. I don't push myself. Um, and I only eat what I like to eat. I do have some sort of textural issues with some foods. So if someone says to me, oh, I'm making so-and-so for dinner, do you want to have it? Quite often I have a very immediate yuck response. No, I don't want that kind of a thing. So the eating is complicated. I, I have to kind of take control of it and make sure I've got stuff that I want to eat. If I'm going to somebody's house and they're making food and I, I kind of don't want it, I'll eat. I'll have to make sure I eat beforehand to make sure that I actually have eaten. But it's something I have to pay a lot of attention to, but it's also something that can be worked on. And I'm yeah. proof of that. I'm I proof think, of that. I think that does help to understand having an everyday viewpoint condition and how that can impact on can lead to multiple different health issues that might not necessarily really be a treat of the condition but like from like the sensory issues like knocked on from having that eating disorder like with the sensory issues and time management and working mm-hmm. out working out plan out two meals and how to remember to eat because I said you know not always sensing when you're hungry because like there is sometimes the stereotype of eating disorders is a being triggered by a lot of trauma and like there isn't that representation of how it might be like a thing for like an ADHD person or an autistic person when it's like that sensory body defense and recognizing yeah. hunger. I just want to add because I didn't mention yeah. it. I also struggle with binge eating as well because it's kind of like one or the other with me and it tends to be phases so if I'm feeling very depressed I'll eat a lot so I'm comfort eating and it's it's this very imbalanced relationship with food and and like you say I think it's actually something that doesn't really get I think from the binge eating side of it as well there's a humongous lack of respect from like the general public to recognize that as an eating disorder. I know a lot of people who have ADHD and autism who massively depend on food as a coping mechanism and have binge eating disorders. And I think that the kind of rhetoric that exists at the moment is that people kind of don't perceive binge eating disorder is because if you're not skinny you don't have an eating disorder I'm not skinny but I do have disordered eating and it affects my life hugely and in a really big way all kinds of eating disorders can affect your life in in a huge way I think people tend to only really recognize the classic ones we all know maybe we've said the issues have been eating like some of it may be attached to like those it's a wider society issue of like fat phobia and like uh, like phobia around beastie and you know like society problem around how like people pers- or perceive like somebody or it's you know uh, like the food than what you typically normally have to eat and you know like because like sometimes in society as say there's lack of you know education in some things and there's lack of empathizing and seeing things for uh, different ways of how you eat and how you see, like, a typical eating way, because, like, with it being a new debut, and then I think from my employer, sometimes you, like, binge eating and eating a lot of food can sometimes be a comfort thing, but, like, in terms of when you got, like, ADHD, autism, essentially, conditions, like, you got stimulant behaviours, 
Like sometimes for some people, they might be orals, they might be biting on certain objects, but some mm. people might not realize that, like, similar stimming with self-regulatory behaviors could be eaten and binge eating. I, I don't know if you relate to this, but I know that it's stimming or I think it's sensory seeking behavior. I'm really into very strong flavors. So I pretty much fill everything with chili. I really love spicy food. I'm like a Tabasco nightmare. <laughs> I also love really fizzy sweets tart flavors fizzy drinks as well is another one for me I think that my hand's already going thinking about it those sorts of sensory seeking things can happen with food as well I think people think of sensory seeking behaviors as like touching things like tactile stuff but you can do that with food as well and that can also add to a bad relationship with food and and kind of contribute to disordered eating patterns as well having that reliance on food to provide sensory relief and stimulation as you say, for me, like it's like when I was like not quite straightforward things, and it does make it quite hard, like in terms of hard to work out to mitigate to make sure it's like a healthy relationship with food, like and making sure that people who help people with disorders can understand these things. And going back to what you've been saying about like the sensory issues. And you potentially showing autistic traits from that. Do you think that, like, from what you implied that you could show autistic traits, do you think you may possibly have autism, or do you think that some of it overlaps with the autistic traits? Now, do you distinguish sometimes between the neurodivergent conditions? This is a really interesting one. I think for me, the ADHD is the is the predominant diagnosis for me. with the autism. The traits that I sort of feel like are kind of very autistic for me is like sensory stuff. I'm not very good with touch a lot of the time. So especially if I'm stressed, if people try to kind of hug me or touch me, oh God, no, it's I can't do that at all. I can't do kind of touch like this on my skin from other people I've got an awful lot of issues with clothes what kind of clothes I can wear that can be really challenging for me I'm actually very limited in the kind of clothes that I can wear because I have such sensory issues I think at the moment I feel like the support that I'm receiving and the medication that I'm on is sufficient for me to cope with my condition so I'm not actually seeking an autism diagnosis at the moment, but in the future, I would be interested to know if I do have autism. I had a conversation with my mum recently. My mum and my sister watched, it was a programme about autism and they, they were meeting people who have autism, you know, various places on the spectrum. My mum watched it and she said that all she kept thinking the whole time she was watching it was, oh my God, that's Lydia. Oh my God, that's Lydia. So I think for me... I don't know if I've spent enough time really kind of evaluating myself enough to say, oh, well, I think I've got, you know, these symptoms and these symptoms. I just recognize a lot of autistic traits in myself, especially when I see it in my friends. But I think, I think especially as I, where it stands right now, I had a very traumatic diagnosis experience. So for me to kind of seek out an additional diagnosis, I think some time would need to pass. I guess from now you think it's, a possibility rather than something that you would like pursue like a fissile diagnosis 
but I said you haven't ruled out getting a diagnosis or mm. like self-diagnosing with it. But one thing with like I guess autism and ADHD is definitely difficult to navigate and work out the differences between the conditions. Because like with myself, I like I do question whether I would have ADHD myself. So it's definitely just hard to distinguish the traits yeah. of the two conditions. Absolutely. And I think the crossover traits between ADHD and autism, I mean, there are so many. I think one one that springs to my mind is rejection sensitive dysphoria, which is one that I kind of spend a lot of time really thinking about because it relates directly to what I do with the whole confidence thing. I suffer with rejection sensitive dysphoria. I've got a friend that was recently diagnosed with it as well. And a client that has been diagnosed with it as a standalone condition. It's a standalone condition now not just a symptom. I'm not even sure if it was officially recognized as a symptom, but that kind of sensitivity is something that's like a crossover with both ADHD and autism. I think as well, one of my best friends is is dyslexic and the crossover of symptoms that me and her have is really interesting. So I think that all of the kind of neurodivergent conditions, dyspraxia, dyslexia, ADHD, autism, etc. There's so much crossover that it's actually quite difficult to just put yourself in one box. It is definitely a minefield to navigate with those things because, yeah, as you say that, like, rejection-sensitive dysphoria doesn't, like, relate to one specific condition on its own. It can co-occur with certain conditions. Like, you can be ADHD with it, autism with it, and... or dyslexic like in a similar way to like stuff like lexophamia. I think having a diagnosis is helpful I think that for me I feel like the kind of core that I have is ADHD and that's been recognized and because of that I'm then able to go and educate myself and find support that's kind of appropriate for the ADHD and along that journey you learn more about autism and you can kind of go oh I have that as well and find different things the having a misdiagnosis can be incredibly traumatizing and also not having a diagnosis at all and with my coaching I target it at neurodivergent women highly sensitive women and women who are self-diagnosed because self-diagnosis is so valid if you feel that you are ADHD or autistic as a woman you recognize those symptoms you don't need a diagnosis in order to get out there do some research try and learn about your identity and find some support for your struggles I feel that really strongly especially because the barrier between particularly women and diagnosis is just so bloody huge realistically it's not possible for everybody to get a diagnosis there's so much circling around the whole diagnosis thing being diagnosed undiagnosed having to wait two years to get diagnosed I think with the growth of the content on TikTok and stuff more people are identifying with those traits and irrespective of what anyone says ADHD anyway is is hugely underdiagnosed particularly in women and you know, I think a lot of women have these really highly sensitive traits. As you were saying, like with ADHD autism, when people see a lot of about it online and the TikTok view of it, there's a lot of like misconceptions of how it's been diagnosed, like mainstream media narrative about it being overdiagnosed. As you say, yeah. it's like underdiagnosed, and it's only now that 
like whether it's women and girls or people who are presenting less typical traits to how it was typically viewed years ago because it's like it seemed like years ago ADHD was just seen as like the naughty boy in a classroom like the loud disruptive and now now view of ADHD and how it's presented it's totally changing its landscape and like like there's a lot more improving off the education around it but there's still a lot more to go but massively when to go back on like the many of the other of your diagnosis is uh threats disorder and your tics so when was it that you started noticing that you had uh tics and threats so this one was a really interesting journey for me i didn't realize that i've always had tics i didn't realize i didn't i don't think i realized because they were very minor so it never really kind of affected me but I would always do things like pull a silly face or like mess about with my tongue in my mouth or like I would do this quite a lot with my hand um I would feel like there's like an energy coming into me and I'd have to get it out like this with my hand sort of minor stuff like that and when I got the diagnosis of ADHD the first thing that my psychiatrist wanted to try was stimulants because obviously I think it's something like 80% of people with ADHD react really well to stimulant medication. So that was the first route we took. I took the meds, I took the pills, very low dose of methylphenidate for about three weeks, I think. And I I was struggling to recognize that it was making me worse. There's this thing called metacognition, which is the basically understanding the way that you think. I was struggling to recognize that the medication is making me worse, but it was. My psychiatrist wanted to put me on a sort of low, low dose for that initial period, because obviously I had the diagnosis of bipolar and he didn't want it to trigger mania. Anyway, I had a phone call with him and I said, yep, it's fine. I'm fine. Nothing bad's happened. So he was like, "Okay, well, you increase the dose. So I took a pill, an extra pill that day while I was on the call with him, hung up. Ten minutes later, my head was slamming into my shoulder repeatedly and I couldn't make it stop. I'm trying to think how long it went on for, but the 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 ticks I was having was every single day, every minute of the day, constant, full body ticks. It was a lot of like my head going back and forth. It was painful. It, it was actually very traumatizing. And again, my my heart goes out to people that that live with in a constant state of that because it, it, it if nothing else it's bloody painful I, I had vocal tics as well again I think I've had vocal tics my whole life but it's it's hard to you just feel like you've blurted out something stupid when you have quite minor tics and it's not kind of like forcing its way out very kind of aggressively so I think I took the dose for about three more days before I just completely stopped taking it and called my doctor and said this is like going horribly wrong but the the intense ticks that I was having lasted for about I want to say six to eight weeks I was on holiday when it started and it was slightly decreasing as the medication was sort of well I don't even know if the medication was still in my system but I was having them for such a long time these really bad ticks I was absolutely terrified that my job was going to kind of find out. So I was trying to hide it. I was trying to hold the ticks in. Anybody that has ticks know that if you kind of hold a tick in, it's absolutely exhausting and painful. I had to keep kind of like running to the kitchen and having these huge tick attacks. 
in the evenings it would just be constant because I'd spent the whole day doing my absolute best to suppress it and I would have these ginormous tick attacks in the evening it was horrific I was just crying constantly my ticks never really fully went away one of the medications I take now suppresses ticks so they're a little bit better now the kind of full body ticks that I had sort of went away I don't do that anymore I don't tend to get I do sort of lift my head if I do it I'm going to start to yeah I'm going to start ticking but I do move my head around a bit with ticks and I make noises and things like that but at the moment I wouldn't say I find it debilitating again I think it's sort of like a confidence thing I accept that it's a part of who I am I tell people oh you know I tick sometimes I wink a lot that actually has got me into trouble (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um winking is not a great tick let me tell you I winked at a guy on the uh, train once and sat mortified with my face out the window thinking that was so embarrassing but to be honest with you sometimes I do have tick attacks and I do have them stronger on some days than other days but I feel like other people suffer with it so much more than I do for me it's something that I just kind of accept about myself it's not something that I ever anticipate fully going away and it doesn't get in the way of my life but it is a visible element to my disorder so it's in a way if we kind of think about masking and and covering things up having the the ticks being exacerbated by the meds and then all of a sudden sort of having a very sort of noticeable tick disorder took away my ability to fully mask being neurodivergent and having mental health issues so I think one of the things that having tics taught me was to be braver about being honest about who I am my identity and my diagnoses you know if I start shaking my head around and winking at people I'm going to have to explain I have Tourette's I'm sorry (laughs) Um, and I think that it's helped me actually with unmasking and being more authentic I think because it's a very visible side effect of of my ADHD I mean I've kind of considered them to be connected in a way for me I feel like it's all the excess energy bursting out of me because in a way that if you're having the two conditions at the same time you're gonna feel like they can interconnect with each other like when you've got like eating disorder to insomnia, anxiety and depression and all those conditions and traits can interlink because of your ADHD and of course like you would think that you know like your threats goes hand in hand with like how your ADHD works and like how your sensory issues work. So what are the things that have helped you in terms of your tips and threats to make sure like you know tick attacks and anything that could be like injurious or painful it's really difficult to say because it's like sneezing it's involuntary to an extent if I'm having mild ticks I have an element of control over it so I can sort of redirect it through my hand or, or something like that it's very very mild but now as it stands um I like I say my medication kind of reduces uh, sort of suppresses the tick so I, I suffer with it a lot less at the moment however when I'm starting to have a tick attack which does still happen I find meditating really really helps in fact one of the things that I often do and and this is going to sound silly but I get my mum to hold my head 
I think just having like my mum's hands on my head is really calming for me. But if I don't have my mum, I'll sit there and I'll hold my head like this. It's kind of an act of, because obviously like I feel like that's where the ticks are coming from. It's my brain, it's my head. I'm purposefully focusing all of my energy into my head to try and kind of de-stimulate and calm down and I just sort of have to let it flow. I think it kind of makes sense because like, as you said, that with certain sensory things that I guess it's the press on the head makes you feel a bit calm and something yeah. that like weights on your head. And like, so what are the things that like you reached out now for support and like do certain things for self-care because like as you said you do meditate and and I think you do like stuff like yoga so can you like see what the things in terms of self-care are to help you self-care is so important and I've actually just made a poster for myself which is on my wall I think oh no you can't see I struggled with for a long time and I think understanding what self-care is is really important self-care isn't just about you know putting moisturizer on and you know meditating self-care is doing things to honor and respect your body and mind so one of the things that I did which has changed my life was I'm just trying to figure out when I started now it would have been February 2022 I joined a tag rugby team it's called Tri-Tag Rugby. It's pretty much all over the country and it's mixed sport. It's boys and girls. They do taster evenings periodically through the year where you can go along and try it out. I met a woman, a wonderful woman at a networking event and we went and had coffee and I, she must have ADHD too because five hours we chatted at each other. <laughs> um, And she said to me, oh, you should come along and try it. And it was that evening. And to be honest, if it had have been the next day, I don't think I'd have gone because I'd have talked myself out of it. But I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go now, blah, blah, blah. And I went, I joined a team and they're like family to me now. Um, It's been absolutely wonderful. I, I started playing once a week. Now I play twice a week. And just that feeling of having a group of people where you go, you play sports together, you have a drink afterwards or whatever, Um that that socializing and that having like a group of people kind of separate from everything else in your life is is I mean it's saved my life I can tell you that because I've been through the hardest two years of my life and that team kept me going the people on that team and they were some of the first people that I disclosed my diagnosis to they're incredibly supportive I think it's really nice that it's sort of boys and girls it's it's the most beautiful environment that you could be in so so there's that that I do which is brilliant and I, I could sit here and talk about it for hours and I'll, I won't um, <laughs> I I also really struggle with rest getting rest properly and, and relaxing and, and doing self-care so one of the things I've just created for myself it's called a dopa menu like dopamine menu <laughs> so a list of things that will give me me dopamine but also just kind of help to remind me to relax so I've got that poster on my wall right now I'm a massive journaler I cannot emphasize enough how much journaling changes your lives how transformative the practice of journaling is and I recommend it to absolutely everyone it's something that's really important to me I think I've been doing it now since 2019 I've been sort of regularly journaling that's something that I would say every single person ever should do but particularly those of us who are neurodivergent 
because a lot of the time we process how we're feeling verbally. So I process a lot of things by talking, but you can also do that in a journal. So if you don't have someone to talk to, journaling can literally be your best friend. I'm looking at my menu for ideas of what I do. Also, I'm a very spiritual person. So I'm like really into crystals and tarot and stuff like that. So that's one of the things I do. Um, And I think that having faith, having spirituality um, can really help with purpose and and stuff like that. It's not for everyone totally get it. That's one of the things that that's really important to me. Um, But yeah, I love writing. I love walking my dog. I think that's another thing, actually, just going back to the sports. One of the things I really struggle with is exercise, actually. I can feel quite like I want to stay in the house. Um, I really struggle with being cold, so I quite often don't want to leave. I also struggle with being hot, so I don't want to leave the house. So sort of forcing myself to walk my dog and having the sports team keeps me accountable, makes me go and exercise. I'd also recommend if it's affordable for people, if you want to get exercising, get a personal trainer, if you can afford it or go to classes, things that hold you accountable where other people are there, I find really, really helps. Yeah, in terms of when you mentioned about personal trainer, there's like find your local gym and look at different activities and, you know, like, exercise for classes you got going on and so mm-hmm. like look for, for what suits yourself then I assume and for many of us talking about the dopamine menu what like explain what a dopamine menu is so a dopamine menu is a list of things that will give you dopamine so for me I'm very impulsive and one of the things that I have a tendency to do is to avoid spending time on my own. So I often in the evenings find myself driving around desperately looking for someone to hang out with. And it's a distraction technique to avoid sort of sitting with yourself and being calm and kind of learning to sort of regulate. So a dopamine is a list of things that will give you dopamine that is healthy and sort of within your own boundaries. So I have mine stuck on my wall so that I can see it very easily and refer to it. So when it comes to the evening, because I I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't know what I want to do um, or I can't really remember what I enjoy doing. I know that sounds a bit silly, but I think that's just sort of working memory and being able to kind of recall what's important. And also the kind of fight against the temptation to get easy do- easy cheap dopamine like going out and getting a coca-cola from mcdonald's and then you know darting around looking for someone to go to the pub with or whatever so on my dopamine menu i have got in blue lots of things that i like to do to relax so if i give you a few examples i've got meditate listen to podcasts creative writing yoga FaceTime dates with friends, playing The Sims. I love playing The Sims, no shame. And then in orange, I've also got things that help me get into the space to do that. So use a timer, light a candle, play music. I've also got YouTube fireplace. I put YouTube on my TV and and I get like a fireplace and that really sets a vibe for me. I don't want to leave my room when I've got the fireplace on. I'm like, oh God, yeah, I'm ready to chill. So I actually made the poster on Canva. I'm not the most creative design person ever. Now I have it on my wall. So I really love that. And it does remind me of ways I can kind of care. You went to the Camarnia to talk about your work with the confident woman coach in the work. Give an idea to like the work you went to, that you do and give like a way your 
of like telling people what you do and how they can find you like and how people can reach out to you. So I discovered quite early on that I, I am quite a naturally confident person, although I have been on a journey with it and built it over time. But I discovered quite early on in my career that I had a real passion for mentoring women. I kind of discovered that a lot of the women that I worked with were really insecure and shy and they weren't getting what they deserved out of work. They were afraid to ask for pay rises and promotions. And as a result, they were getting stuck where they were. And that was denting their confidence even more. They felt like they were overlooked. So I mentored some women at work and helped them to get pay rises and promotions. And that lit a fire within me. First thing I actually did was I I set up an events company for women where I started doing networking events for women, bringing young women together in a really fun, non-intimidating way. So when I decided I wanted to work for myself, what I really wanted to do was work with specifically neurodivergent women who I feel suffer significantly more with their confidence. Also highly sensitive women, women that don't necessarily have a diagnosis of a neurodivergent condition, but really relate to kind of, you know, RSD, hypersensitivity, that real struggle with confidence in getting what you want. I went on a course to learn how to do that. And I had great success with a couple of clients, got so much out of it. And I realized this is kind of my place in the world. I want to support women to get what they deserve in life, to step into their identity, own who they are, be able to kind of face the world bravely and express their authentic selves. Confidence changes literally everything. That limiting beliefs crush us completely. And, and everybody's affected by this, but my particular interest is in women. I'm on TikTok at the dot confident woman and Instagram at the confident dot woman. I offer one-to-one coaching and I also am working on some really affordable downloadable workbooks as well so that it's kind of accessible to everybody. My main thing is making sure as many women as possible have access to confidence, learn how to grow it, learn how to keep it and really learn how to love themselves and get what they deserve. Yeah. So I guess from when you're doing these one-to-one sessions you tend to chat to of anywhere for people about like what's going on in their lives and help them understand and be more aware of the neurodiverse and condition and looking at how they can improve things in their lives and looking at problems and like helping them solve them is it more like that the key first of all is getting to know yourself Becoming firm in your identity. A lot of us are people pleasers and self-sacrificers and we can lose our identity whilst we're doing that. So the first kind of stage is really getting to know yourself and understanding who you are, your values, what's important to you. After we kind of do that, then we start to look at where are the areas that your confidence is low and then we find practical solutions bespoke to each person as to how we're going to achieve that step by step achievable rates of pace and and go from there build it confidence is something that can be learned you are not just born with it it isn't something that is just reserved for the elite few that just happen to have it because they are x y and z no we can all be confident it is for everybody we all just have to learn and some of us just haven't got the skills yet 
But honestly, it's something that should be for everyone. And women, particularly neurodivergent women, really suffer in, in lacking confidence. And there's a lot to work through with the RSD. So for me, it's about getting you to understand your identity and who you are, and then building a toolkit to deal with situations going forwards to become a more confident person. You think it's like giving people the help and support that you wish you had when you were getting diagnosed? I honestly wish that I had a service like this when I was going through my diagnosis and when I was going through burnout as well. Um, there, are, I look back on my career with with a tinge of sadness that at some times I felt so crushed by it that I got myself to a place where I could really handle anything. And, and I mean, the thing with confidence is even the most confident people you know have wobbles. We're not perfect. Like everybody will have the moments. But being able to trust yourself, handle yourself, make decisions for yourself and put yourself first is is so important. And it's something that, yes, I, I do wish that I'd had a service like this at the time. And I think that people probably don't realise the the kind of scope of the impact of a lack of confidence on every area of your life. And the way your life changes that is just huge when you have confidence. Confidence changes literally everything, everything. Yeah. As you said, with the, like the, you wish you had this type of support when getting diagnosed. What are the main key problems do you think are out there for uh, like neurodivergent people? I think probably you're looking at things like imposter syndrome. I mean, imposter syndrome affects 70% of the population. And then if you kind of close in on the neurodivergent women, that is absolutely huge. We all think we're frauds. We all think that we've somehow fluked getting where we are when we haven't. That kind of lack of recognition of your own successes, recognizing what you've done. The limiting beliefs and having a diagnosis can make your limiting beliefs worse because it's almost like confirmation. Oh God, there's something wrong with me and that can kind of add to the limiting beliefs that you have you can only do as well as you're willing to believe you can do the other thing that neurodivergent people particularly suffer with is negative self-talk if you have a constant train of self-critical thoughts going through your head of course you're going to lack confidence so that's something that I work with my clients on is kind of breaking that down breaking down the negative thought patterns and tracking the moments of lack of confidence and seeing like what we're saying to ourselves is so important. So that's definitely up there. Rejection sensitive dysphoria is so common amongst basically all neurodivergent people. Like we were saying earlier, it's not unique to just one of the conditions. It's a standalone diagnosis in its own right. And it's a symptom common in all of the neurodivergent conditions. That hypersensitivity to perceived or real rejection has a huge impact on confidence. And you do need tools to work on that. That's really important. Yeah. I've seen that sometimes when you get a diagnosis, it can make you feel lacking confidence, like seeing the limitations. And I think that can sometimes come from society's Totally ableism and when you see other people struggling and finding things hard in society and I know you listened to this podcast before and one of the questions I tend to ask what things can make it better for neurodivergent 
people in society? I think the first one for me is is education. Neurodivergence affects such a huge proportion of the population that it's it's embarrassing really that we don't have the education on it, that there's still so much stigma and taboo. I think it's something that schools need to understand, employers need to understand, and also we need to understand about ourselves as well. I think that we're really lacking that kind of understanding of it. I think the way that work is for neurodivergent people is unsustainable. I think it's getting a little bit better, but there's still so much of a taboo around it that people are afraid to disclose their diagnoses to work and therefore get the kind of adjustments they need. I think the ableism and and stigma, I mean, I was only diagnosed two years ago and the psychiatrist said, you can't be ADHD because you're stupid. I mean, it comes back to education, really. I think people need to be far more aware of what it is and what it means. And I think that things like podcasts like this social media really shine a spotlight on what it is to be neurodivergent and I think it shows us at our best and shows how much value we add and I do think that that understanding is growing but I still think there's a long way to go I think that schools need to do better employers need to do better let's take away from this what are the things that you would risk that people in terms of education and awareness what are the key things or the key thing that people should be aware of about ADHD and bipolar disorder and Tourette's, since including bipolar disorder, because like from your misdiagnosis, you was able to learn a lot more about condition and how people perceive that condition. Is I think that we need to be more flexible in our approach and I don't even think that this is just for the benefit of neurodivergent people I think that we are working and learning in a way that is so outdated it doesn't really suit the world anymore I think people need to know that people who are neurodivergent and you know suffer with mental illness we might need more flexibility in the way that things are kind of done like me personally I am an amazing worker, but I know that I can't work a nine to five like everybody else. And currently, I don't think there's anything in law that says that we can kind of work more flexible hours. And with schools as well, they need to be looking out for it far more than they are. And I think that the the constant pressure for just academic grades and, and not actually nurturing your children the children in your care is unsustainable it just creates damaged people at the end of the day and then we have to as adults do the repair work on that it's difficult because I think the whole system needs a huge overhaul and at the moment we are trying to kind of fight for it to get our adjustments in place but I think the whole system needs a revamp because we're losing so much value that could be added to the world generally from neurodivergent people because we're overlooked. It's like a square peg trying to go through a circle hole. It's not going to happen, but that doesn't mean that we're any less valuable. We need to treat people like individual human beings. I think the problem with the whole nine to five structure is it's very much a kind of copy paste. Everybody does the same thing and that doesn't work for everybody. And I think you have to treat everybody as an individual. And as an employer, what I would say to employers is 
ask your employees, what do you need from me to make your working life easier? Do you need more flexible working time? Do you need more deadlines? Do you need more check-ins or do you need to be left alone a bit more? Do you want to kind of revisit these things? I think that's the thing for me. Treat people as individual human beings, not as numbers. And I think you will get so much more out of people. Exactly. And is there any thing that you want to say that I haven't got to say already on a podcast or anything else you said to you sent me a list of topics and things to cover off on the podcast is there anything that you like to include I might have missed out in the terms of like the questions I think we've covered a lot I think what I would say as my kind of closing statement is that we all deserve to be confident in who we are as people. We all deserve to own our unique identity. We all deserve the right to unmask and be our authentic selves. And I hope for everybody listening and watching that you're able to find that within yourself and don't be afraid to ask for help. Life is so much better when you trust yourself. And I think we we spend such a long time feeling shamed for who we are as people and it's time to kind of crawl out of that shell and own who you are and step into the step into your own spotlight and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast this podcast will be back next sunday so if you want any for more information remember to visit www.newrainbowproject.com thank you and goodbye